Inside a rough and ruthless newsroom, thousands of stories fight for the spotlight. Only a few survive past their 15 minutes of fame. So what makes for a good headline and what makes for a buried byline? Join us, two former TV news producers, as we dig up stories that never got the recognition or justice they deserve. I'm Mallory Wilson. I'm Megan DeLucine. And this is Buried Bylines. Okay, we've, we're starting over again. Starting over. <laughs> Well, you know, we've made it like 20 something episodes and we've never had to do this. So that's pretty good. It was bound to happen at some point. I know. All right. So take two. (laughs) We're going to try this whole episode all over again. Yes. 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 So today we're talking about a serial killer, which we have not done before. And I only know about it, you, I feel like you only know about it because we listen to true crime podcasts. The last podcast on the left does a really good deep dive on this case. It's a four-parter, each episode an hour long. And then there's a couple of media articles that are really good that go deep into the serial killer part of it. But I'm going to go bare bones for the serial killing part of it because the part that I want to focus on just came out a couple weeks ago. Today, we're going to be talking about the very last unidentified victim of Dean Coral, aka the Candyman Killer. So, if you listen to True Crime, you've probably heard of him because I feel like every single podcast does it at some point, and I'm sure there's like Dateline episodes about it. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the killer. He doesn't really deserve that. So, I'm going to try and push to get this victim his identity back. And it's a relevant case because the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, NCMEC, just unveiled a newly released sketch of that victim. So. Is it like an AI sketch? Like yeah. A, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like. That's cool. Like I said to you in the first go around, there's also a second part of the newly released stuff that I've never seen or heard of before and it has to do with like his accessories and like clothes that he had on so it's it's very interesting so before we get to that I want to do a little bit of background so authorities have now identified 27 other victims of Dean Coral this victim is the very last one they need to identify that we know about they're collectively known as the Lost Boys that's how media has portrayed them in the past so I'm hoping by spreading the word about him, someday his family can get some closure. Absolutely. We'll start with the background info. We are headed to the 70s, which was a wild, wild time. Um, My favorite era. (laughs) Yes. I tried to stay local in my research, which involves media outlets in and around Houston, Texas. So according to an article in Texas Monthly titled The Lost Boys... This all started when two teenagers disappeared from the Houston Heights neighborhood in December of 1970. It was a low-income neighborhood northwest of downtown Houston. Then another teenager disappeared, and then another, and then dozens. And nobody cared. And nobody cared. Nobody. (laughs) Nobody nobody opened their fucking eyes and realized. It's crazy. Like I, and once we get into it a little later, like where these victims disappeared from, I'm like, how the hell did nobody notice this? 
But that Texas Monthly article, it's a great long-form piece. I highly recommend reading it if you're interested. It's by Skip Hollinsworth, and he's well-known in the true crime community. He does a lot of deep dives, and it's clear that he spends a lot of time working on these articles and then talking with the families. Like, he talked to multiple families of these victims and kind of got inside information about what they're doing now, how they're coping, and kind of more about the victims. So it's it's a really good read, but it is kind of graphic because these murders were very graphic. So trigger warning if you're going to go into a deep dive on this case. All of these teens had gone missing starting in 1970, and it wasn't until August 8th of 1973 that authorities announced 33-year-old Dean Coral had been shot to death at his home in Pasadena, a Houston suburb, and the world learned about all of the horrors that went on at his hands. Detectives arrived at the scene. They were called for a homicide. One. One homicide. And then they literally started digging up bodies of teenage boys. Casual. If I was a cop, I would quit at that point. <laughs> yeah, that's your cue. That's my cue to leave. Goodbye. I couldn't even imagine. But they found the bodies near a metal storage shed. It was like a boat shed or something near where Dean Coral was living. And that's when they announced, oh, actually, the homicide is a serial killer (laughs) that got killed. So authorities say Coral had once been a resident of the Heights, where he helped his mother run a small candy factory. He was known to hand out candy to small kids in the area, which is the origin behind the Candyman killer nickname, which is gross. Now, I'm not going to get into his early life because I really don't give a shit. No matter what hand you're dealt, you decide what you're going to do with your life. Hundreds of thousands of people grow up dealing with things like divorce and abuse. And like I read through his background, it wasn't really that bad. Yeah, your parents got divorced, but like don't kill people. <laughs> like That's not giving you a reason to kill people. So I have zero sympathy for this guy. I don't really care about how he felt about growing up. I really do not care. But I do care about how... This all started, and this was allowed to happen. He groomed multiple young boys before doing the killings. According to Wikipedia, he befriended 12-year-old David Owen Brooks in 1967. David and other teen boys hung out with Coral at the back of the candy factory. Coral also took David and other boys on trips to South Texas with him. He gave David money when he asked, and he eventually formed a relationship that turned sexual. Gross. I... (laughs) <laughs> I just can't stop thinking about how, like, these kids were going on full-blown trips with a random yeah. adult. Like, where, literally, where were now? their parents? Oh, my no, God. No, absolutely not. Yeah, like, oh, hi, adult man. Why are you hanging out with young children and taking them on trips? Like- Even the, like, I'm, hey, mom and dad, I'm gonna go on a trip with the owner of the local candy <laughs> store. Like, that's not yeah. normal. No, it's not. And somebody should have noticed this. But that's how David Owen Brooks became one of Coral's eventual accomplices in his murders. He had one other accomplice, Elmer Wayne Henley. Both were teenagers at the time of the murders. Both helped lure victims to Coral. And again, not going to get into a ton of graphic detail here, but here's how the process would usually go. The victims were usually lured into one of Coral's vehicles by the accomplices. Usually they offered to take them to a party or give them a ride. The victim would then be driven to Coral's house where they would be given drugs, alcohol, until they passed out. Eventually, they were stripped naked, tied up, beaten, sexually assaulted, sometimes tortured, 
and eventually killed by strangulation or by being shot to death. I didn't bring this up in the first one, but the first the first attempt at recording this episode. Um, but our first go around. <laughs> um, Coral had a literal like torture board that hung above his bed in his bedroom. What is a torture board? Like what I is that? Mean? I didn't look hard into it but it seemed like it was like pieces of wood like nailed together and then it had like like restraints Ew. on them yeah That's it was so like it, it was so graphic and yeah it's it's kind of on the on the same level as the anthill kids cult to be honest yeah some of the stuff that these poor victims went through before they died so it seemed like he was definitely like a sadist and like got off on the torturing part and the murdering part, but yeah. Once the victims were killed, their bodies were then wrapped up in plastic sheeting and buried in one of four places. That metal boat shed, a beach on the Boulevard Peninsula, in the woods near Lake Sam Rayburn, or a beach in Jefferson County. So according to Wikipedia, Coral forced the victims to either call or write their parents with explanations as to why they weren't coming home. So that could be like writing a postcard saying, hey, I got a job offer here and I'm going to live, I'm going to live here now, goodbye. And like sometimes he would, yeah, be like, call your parents and tell them that you're running away or you're going somewhere else so kind of yeah. and we talked system. about that too how like in the 70s there was no way to verify right or like find your kid you couldn't track their phone they didn't <laughs> have you couldn't ping their cell phone like there right. was no social media there's just like if someone disappeared there's literally no way to find them even phone records back then were sketch like I don't know <laughs> you'd have to know how to contact the phone company in the first place which would be like the phone book maybe so yeah it was definitely harder to track people down back then Coral's first known victim was 18 year old college freshman Jeffrey Conan this was in 1970 around the time of that murder Brooks said that he had previously interrupted Coral in the act of sexually assaulting two teen boys Brooks said Coral promised him a car in return for his silence which he did give him a car and according to Brooks Coral actually offered him $200 per boy that he could lure to Coral's residence which is disgusting and I did calculate that for inflation that's over $1,500 so it is a lot of money but like <laughs> I feel like no amount of money should be enough for you to like take that's like some that black you know. market shit these yeah. days is like a literal ugh. incentive yeah <laughs> like, ugh. or a bonus like a bonus if you bring me if you bring me some victims but I do want to take the time to remind you that at this time at this murder Brooks is still a minor he's about 15 years old so not an excuse but we do have to consider the fact that he was groomed by a predator at a very young age and the relationship was sexual so I'm assuming it was like the first sexual relationship this young boy had which can definitely do some mental damage That's there. So sad. Yeah, the, like, it's the sad. manipulation and the because I'm sure like when you're so vulnerable when you're in that position, especially like you know mm-hmm. if I don't know, it's hard. You don't want to speculate because you don't know everything. But like, right. if you're a young boy in the 70s who is gay and you're getting attention from an older man and you think yeah. like it's love or whatever I don't you know I don't know or he's paying you attention and you don't feel comfortable being out you know who knows what the circumstances were around their very right not 
okay relationship. Right. It was not not okay at all. When you're that young, your brain isn't even fully formed yet. So, I mean, there are circumstances to consider, but he did, like, not really do anything to stop this and actually brought him victim. So it's a tricky <coughs> thing to talk about. So the killings are happening. In the winter of 1971, Brooks introduced Elmer Wayne Henley to Coral. So I've read kind of mixed things in sources about this. So some say Brooks introduced Elmer Henley as a victim like one of the boys that Coral was going to kill, but Coral allegedly saw something in Henley that he was like, oh, you could be an accomplice too. So he eventually offered Henley the same fee of $200 per boy that he could lure to his residence. He told Henley that he was involved in a, quote, white slavery ring, which doesn't make it better. (laughs) But for some reason, Coral- not better. Not better. Doesn't, like- (laughs) Still just as bad. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Coral thinks that like softens the blow of what he's doing, I guess. Later on, Henley would claim he didn't originally know that Coral was going to kill the boys he led to his house. But I mean, if you believe the first part, then he did know that they were going to be sold into sex slavery. So yeah. But Brooks later said Henley was, quote, especially sadistic in his participation in some of the murders. So that's according to Brooks, but Henley did eventually confess to participating in the actual killings. Later, both Brooks and Henley testified that Coral's rate of killing increased dramatically in 1973. They said it got to the point where they could kind of tell by his mood shifting when he would ask them for another boy, and it just kept happening, like, more quickly. Uh, Yeah, so it seems like he was kind of spiraling, escalating, whatever you want to call it. All of this came to an end when the now 17-year-old Elmer Wayne Henley, his own accomplice, shot and killed him on August 8th of 1973. Henley lured a 20-year-old male friend to Coral's residence. Brooks wasn't there at the time. I don't know where he was. Eventually, he got married, like Brooks did, and like had a kid and stuff, and was like married while helping him do this stuff. Uh- <laughs> yeah! I mean, he was still young, but, like, married to a wife and was still hanging out with Coral and, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, Henley also brought a female friend along who had been beaten by her drunken father that evening and didn't want to go home. So, Henley was like, yeah, I guess you can just come with us. Which, again, is not a better situation (laughs) for her. Yeah, here's Um, another round of trauma for you to endure. Yeah. Oh, your father's beating you while drunk? Here, come with me to my killing friend that murders and tortures people. So I don't know. There's something not right up there. Henley said that Coral, like, got there and he was mad that he brought a girl to his house, but seemed to calm him down. And then Coral was offering them beer, marijuana. The three eventually passed out. Henley said he woke up lying on his stomach with Coral snapping handcuffs onto his wrist which would be fucking scary because you know what this man is capable of doing and that you helped him do. I can't imagine that. I don't I'm not I don't feel bad for him, but it would still be fucking scary. His mouth was taped shut, his ankles were bound, his two friends were next to him also gagged and bound. When Coral saw that he was awake, he removed Henley's gag. Henley then calmed him down and promised that he would help him torture and kill the other two teens if Coral released him. So Coral agreed, according to Henley, untied him. They took the other two into Coral's bedroom while Coral started assaulting the 20-year-old male friend, and then he told 
Henley, he was like, you can do, you can do this to the girl or whatever. And then Henley again, tried to like kind of talk him out of it. And then Coral got like belligerent and like came at him. That's when Henley fired a shot at Coral with a gun hitting him in the forehead, which somehow did not kill him. And we talked about this where we were like, yeah, this happens a lot, actually. Where so many reports of like people being shot in the head. And I was saying earlier that I just like, I don't understand. It doesn't register in my brain because I think like if someone's been shot in the head, they've been shot like through the front, through their brain mm-hmm. and are just dead. But yeah, like that's not blank. always the case. No, he hit him in the forehead. Well, like you said, he hit him in the forehead, so I don't understand. (laughs) Unless it was, like, a weak gun. I don't know. I don't know a lot about guns. Shocker. Shocker, I don't. Yeah, I mean, Um, me either. (laughs) uh, Eventually, Henley shot Coral six times, ultimately killing him in what he said was self-defense. That's when Henley called the police and told them what he'd done. So, originally, police were called to the scene for a one-person homicide. And then Henley in the interrogation room was like, actually, we've killed like dozens of a ton of people. Yeah. (laughs) And they did not believe him at first because they were like, what do you mean? Like, we would have noticed this, I feel like. Yeah. Which you should have. You should have. But they did believe him when Brooks and Henley later led police to the victim's bodies. Because like I said, they were buried in four different locations. Brooks, again, wasn't there when Henley shot Coral, but he turned himself in. He denied any involvement in the actual murders, but admitted to knowing Coral was assaulting and killing the victims. Brooks eventually gave a full confession, admitting to being present at several murders and assisting in the burials, but he still denied direct participation in the murders, which I find hard to believe. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. Henley, though, confessed to killing nine people and no shame. Coral. Yeah. Helping him with the murders of others. Both were later indicted on murder charges. Henley for six, Brooks for four. They were tried separately. Henley was convicted in 1974 of all six counts and sentenced to 99 years per murder to be served consecutively for a grand total of 594 years. Bye. <laughs> so that the judge. <laughs> Threw the whole dictionary at him at that point. Yeah. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Brooks was indicted on four murders, but only tried for one, to which he was found guilty, sentenced to life in prison. So both in there for forever. Henley remains in prison to this day. He's next eligible for parole on October of 2025. He has tried for parole previously, but every time they're like, no, thank you. You can stay in there. (laughs) That's going to be a no. Yeah, goodbye. Brooks died in a Texas Department of Criminal Justice hospital in 2020 of COVID-19 complications. (laughs) In the research that I found, both accomplices had come from quote-unquote broken homes. They were groomed by a predator. I think it's important to continuously note this. Yeah, definitely had influence, but they... They could have not. (laughs) Yeah, they could have at any time could have gone to police and it would have stopped, but they just let it continue. Oh, yeah. And a lot of the victims were actually like their friends and peers because they all came from the same area. That's how they get the victims to like come with them because they knew them. Which is another another level of fucked up. (laughs) Your life is worth $200. Right. Yeah. So all of this happened between 1970 and 1973. 
Coral is known to have killed a minimum of 28 victims, all between the ages of 13 and 20. Most were abducted from Houston Heights. We'll probably never know the true death toll or how many people that he victimized beforehand because I doubt that he jumped straight to murder before doing, like, other fucked up shit. Yeah. To kids. At the time the bodies were discovered, the term serial killer did not exist yet, but it definitely caught the attention of the media. It was, at the time, the worst killing spree in American history. Well, don't worry. There were uh, there were probably at least five other serial killers active at the time. Oh, yeah. They just didn't catch them yet, for sure. Right. <laughs> and here's where the buried bylines part of our podcast comes in. Through my research, I found out at least 20 of the victims had been residents of the Heights or a neighborhood nearby. 11 of them went to the same fucking junior high school. How did this happen? Like, how, I... I mean, I'm more shocked. I mean, parents, I I don't know. I'm more shocked that kids aren't noticing that their classmates are going missing. Right. And I'm sure they did. But I mean, because in the Skip Hollingsworth article, he interviewed a bunch of parents that were like, we went to the police. Like, we went to the police saying, like, our kids are not runaways. Granted, some of them did have not, like, an extensive history of running away, but they did. I mean, I ran away when I was, like, eight. I went to the corner, but (laughs) I had, like, a grilled cheese. You didn't fully run away. And then nobody noticed, so I came back. (laughs) (laughs) That's so sad. I don't even know what it was about, to be honest, but... I mean, like, I don't know, kids do stupid shit, but still. Yeah, but these are closer to teenagers, like. I know, I know, that's true. I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to socioeconomic status. It was a low-income area. It wasn't like a bunch of rich kids were going missing, so, like, unfortunately, that's when authorities don't really give a shit. And even now, like, there is a general idea, like, you think, missing teen, runaway. Like, it seems like there's an implicit thought that runaways goes with teens for some reason and I'm sure there are a lot of those happening but still like when you look at a trend of 11 kids from the same junior high are missing it's like I don't understand how you don't even look into that according to my research family of corals victims were highly critical of the Houston Police Department which again had been quick to label the missing boys as runaways and I mean fair Yeah, not considered worthy of a major investigation. Again, this is despite several families insisting that the boys had no reasons to run away. So, like, some of these victims, like, were not saying that this makes them more important, but, like, straight-A students followed the rules, like, never ran away before. So... I mean, I don't know. And many of them actually vanished while on their daily routines, like walking to work, trying to use the payphone. Everett Waldrop, father of Donald and Jerry Waldrop, who both disappeared in 1971, said that he told police an acquaintance of his had seen Coral burning what looked like bodies at the boat shed. Casual. Casual, yes. In response, the police performed a lackluster search around the shed before dismissing the reports as a hoax. Not a hoax. You obviously didn't fucking look hard enough. There's multiple bodies buried near that shed. The families say the police should have seen the trend in disappearances, which I think they should have, happening in such a small area. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) According to the Lost Boys article, this was an area that was two miles wide and three miles deep that they all went missing from. So, like, there's no excuse. I don't I'm sorry. There's no excuse that you don't notice 
that something funky's happening here. Yeah. And they're all of the same, like, age range, of the same area. They all are disappearing when, like, there's... No, I don't think any of the families, there might have been some, but I didn't read of any where the family was like, yeah, we had a big falling out and then they left the house. It was just like while they were doing things, like literally walking to work or to school. Yeah. Like, but playing devil's advocate, I want to point out there were not computers. There were not databases. There were no Amber Alerts. There was no internet. Parents of missing kids might not have ever known that there were other missing kids in the area unless they were, like, told or talking to each other. The kids were probably talking to each other, like you mentioned before. Had to be, like... Like, where the fuck did Johnny go? Oh, where the fuck did Walter go? They didn't all just run away. Yeah, like 28 kids within the same area. I don't know. I would like to believe that someone would notice the trend today. (laughs) I would have to believe that for the sake of our human race. Right. I don't know. But I mean, it's something we still see to this day. Like if a teen, like I said, if a teen goes missing, you're like, oh, probably a runaway, which sucks. It's also crazy to me that this isn't really talked about on the scale of like Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy or Jeffrey Dahmer. Like those are the yeah. like big people because like this was brutal shit. It seems like it has the makings of like a big blow up in the media. And like while it did with the initial discovery of the bodies the lost boys article goes into this a little bit more and i really liked the explanation for why it's not on the scale of like the big serial killers whatever yeah i'd love to hear it (laughs) yeah so according to that article there were two books quickly published about the killings but they didn't stay on the shelves for very long this coming from skip hollinsworth he says it's likely due to an element of the media that we talk about all the time which is visuals so at the time there were only a few grainy black and white photos of Dean Coral. Like, he didn't record himself. There weren't any, like, it was just pictures. He never gave an interview because Henley killed him. And the public quickly became obsessed with what Hollinsworth calls more media-accessible killers. So, Bundy, the son of Sam, John Wayne Gacy, they gave interviews. They liked to talk about themselves. There was, like, footage of them being led into the court in handcuffs and stuff. So, like, they were accessible. A spectacle of it all, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and there really wasn't a spectacle here because he was killed. I don't know. And like you said before, I think it uh, the gay thing has a lot to do with it, too. Yeah, I and like I said in our other recording that got deleted because we were having... The lost some, tapes. The lost tapes. Um, <laughs> was that, like, it's, it's a known thing that police officers especially during this time period, particularly during this time period, when stuff like this would happen that involved, like, gay relationships or Mm -hmm. gay sexual assault, they did not like to deal or think about that and Mm -hmm. would turn a blind eye. I mean, it happened... This this guy reminds me a lot of Gacy. And Mm -hmm. it's like... The cops there, like, didn't really like the idea of the gay shit either. Yeah, and Jeffrey Dahmer. If you've watched that, um, re- I don't know, is it a mock, what is it called? It's not a documentary because it's Evan Peters, but oh. if you've watched that series, there's a yeah. whole, epi- like, it starts like that, where one of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims, who had undergone a freaking lobotomy pretty much, escaped and, like, ran outside and police like ran to police and then Dahmer found them on the street and was like oh that's my boyfriend we're doing gay stuff like he's just a little <sighs> drunk and they were like oh yeah you can take him back Bye. So the victim escaped, Jesus. 
when the police gave the victim back to the killer who eventually killed him. I need a lobotomy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, it's, it sucks. Like, no matter what your views, you need to fucking investigate crimes. I don't, I don't, I yeah. don't get it. And I'm not saying all police. No, no, no. Like I think this. it was just like, it, it was back very much. It was bad felt taboo back then and I don't think anybody knew how to handle it like I definitely right. think it's different now or I would I like too. to think that it's different now yeah I do too it's more it's more talked about and it's literally just viewed as how it should be in my opinion like it's just a relationship like period but here's what floors me there are no memorials or anything for the victims in that area in the Houston Heights area like no signs I don't think that's crazy nothing yeah I don't think so like Skip Hollinsworth even said like people living in the area to this day didn't know about it so like these victims are getting forgotten which is very sad but I want to circle back to where we started the newly released sketch of the last unidentified victim he is being called Houston John Doe 1973, with John Doe being a common name given to unidentified male remains. 50 years ago, this teenage boy's body was discovered along with the several others at the Houston Boat Storage Shed on August 8, 1973. According to Houston Public Media, 50 years to the day after the murders were discovered, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, NCMEC, released the new sketch of this victim, on August 7th of 2023. It is a facial reconstruction image, so computerized. And then if you want to look it up real quick, Mallory, so that you can kind of see. Yeah, I saw it when I was looking up his name earlier. What looks real? Like, it looks like a real picture, which is crazy. So Houston John Doe, 1973, was estimated to be between 15 and 18 years old at the time that he was killed, likely a year before his body was found, so in 1972. He was white with, quote, possible Hispanic admixture, which I've not heard of before, but that's how Mm -hmm. Nick Mick described him. He had brown hair that was seven inches in length and stood between five foot two and five foot seven. A postmortem examination revealed that Houston John Doe 1973 had a mild case of spina bifida, which could have caused him lower back pain or affected the way he walked, but it's possible that the condition didn't produce any noticeable symptoms. So it's just another thing that hopefully people might notice if it did impact the way he walked. This is the new thing for me. But in addition to the new facial reconstruction image, Nick Mick worked with the Harris County Institute of Forensic Scientists to create new digital reconstructions of the items found with him and on him. Oh, wow. What were the items? Yeah. So that's uh, brown leather cowboy boots with the word neolite on the heel, a knotted leather ankle bracelet, dark blue corduroy pants with a 32-inch waist and 30-inch inseam, multicolored swimming trunks, and a long-sleeved khaki-colored shirt. So the belted Catalina swim trunks had vertical stripes that were dark blue, red, turquoise, and gold, along with a silver buckle that featured golden wings with the letter C in the middle. The 1970s-style shirt tied in the front and had large red, white, and blue peace symbol on the back along with the letters USA. Under the peace symbol in small lettering, like handwritten, was LBHMF, which some sources I read say could possibly be a military reference. There were also pearl buttons on the front pockets. So That's so much detail. I know. And like, you can look at them now. Like It like reminds the- me of those, the Sumter County Joes. There's so much yes. like detail in the clothing and the... Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, but in this one, they, like, they reconstructed them somehow for photos. Like, it's, they look real. Like, it's, I don't know, it's just crazy. And it was, like, the first time I've ever heard of anything like that. So, again, like you said, a lot of detail. Now there are these new digital images of these things. So, we'll definitely be linking the sketch and those items. I have to say, looking at them, I would probably wear the outfit, like, now. It's, like, super cool in, like, 70s. It was really cool. There's also... Yeah, I'm uh, looking at pictures. They look great. Yeah! <laughs> There's also a very well done YouTube video showcasing Houston John Doe 1973 and summarizing the case that is linked on Nick Mick's website. The supervisor of the organization's forensic services unit, Carol Schweitzer, said in a news release, quote, we remain hopeful that this young man's family and friends are still looking for him. He may have siblings, cousins, classmates, neighbors, or friends that have always wondered what happened to him. Schweitzer said that Houston John Doe 1973's friends and classmates would be in their late 60s to early 70s now so if you were in the area around the time he was killed or have family members that were maybe just like show him the sketch a single lead could solve this case and again he's the last known victim of the bodies they found one out of 27 that they've already identified so how how like with all of the victims being from this particular area and like I don't know. I just don't know how, as a parent or a friend or whatever, you hear about the news of this and you hear yeah. about all these victims and you don't think like, oh, this could be someone who no. I know that ran away or et cetera. Like, how have we not figured this out yet? I don't know. He could be an anomaly. Like, he could have been hitchhiking in the area or something. Yeah. He could just be somebody that's not from there. I don't know. But if you have any information on Houston John Doe 1973, please call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST or contact the Harris County Institute of Forensic Sciences and reference case number ML733356. So the facial reconstruction and digital reconstruction of his items are uploaded into all national missing persons databases. His DNA has been entered into the national DNA database, CODIS. Nick Mix said authorities have been actively searching for a match since 2005. Forensic genetic genealogy has also been pursued, but has not been successful to date. Crazy. I just think technology is crazy and like we're going to solve more and more of these. I hope so. I mean... I love the fact that, like, we can digitally bring these things back to, like, people and items and, yeah. I've never heard of that before. Me either. (sighs) Do you have a fun fact for me? We need one after this one. I know. Okay, did you know the original voices for Mickey and Minnie Mouse got married in real life? Oh my god! Wayne, That's a good one. I know. Wayne Alwyn and Russie Taylor were married for 18 years after meeting through their roles as Mickey that's and Minnie Mouse. That's amazing. Yeah. Aw, that's a good one. That's a good one. Good job. High note. As journalists, we want to give credit where credit is due. For this story, I got my sources from Houston Public Media, MissingKids.org, Texas Monthly, KHOU, The Houston Chronicle, and Nick Mick's website. You can find a full list of our sources in our show notes. Please make sure to check them out. Bye! And don't kill people. Please, for the love of God. Wait! Okay, bye. Okay, bye.